you've not been with us, as Michael just said, this is our last sermon in the book of Jonah this morning. And two major ideas that we've been noticing as we've walked through this book, uh, we've seen them week after week. Uh, the first is this, that we have a God who pursues, a God who pursued us while we were lost, and then as we become one of his, he uses us to pursue others that are lost. So we have a God who pursues. But secondly, we have a God who has a mission, and that mission is to save a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And, uh, and the question we've been asking is, what does it look like for God to use us to be a part of this mission? As his church here at Poplar Spring, as individuals that make up the body of Christ here at Poplar Spring, what does it look like for us to be a, a part of this mission? Uh, week one, we saw God tell Jonah, he commanded Jonah, go be a part of this mission by going to the Ninevites, those wicked, evil Ninevites, and preach to them. And Jonah refused. He rebelled against God by simply saying no, and he headed the opposite direction. And, uh, and God appointed a fish. If you know the story, if you've grown up in church or been around the church or, or read your Bibles, uh, even storybook Bibles, the, the fish goes and it swallows Jonah. And, uh, and three days later, the Lord brings him to a place of repentance inside the belly of the fish. The fish spits Jonah out and Jonah goes and preaches to his enemies. And from Jonah's example, we learn a lot about the nature of evangelism. We talked about that last week. We learn a lot about the nature of conversion, what it means to be born again, what God does in the human heart when, when, they hear, when someone hears the word of God and the Lord brings about repentance, how sinners are brought from death to life. That's exactly what happened with these wicked Ninevites. They repented. Chapter 3, verse 10, where we ended last week, says that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, it seems like that would be a pretty nice ending to this, this story, this text, uh, an ending to a story of God's mercy and grace, how God brought one of his prophets to repentance and used him, and it brought an entire wicked, evil nation to a place of repentance. That, that would be a great ending. But that's not where Jonah ends. <laughs> There's another chapter. And chapter 4 is what you just heard Pastor Michael read for us. God is not finished teaching us. And here's what we see. Uh, the, the, the first observation that God pursues us, that we mentioned two weeks ago, is what we'll see in the text this morning. An observation that God has a mission and he's called us to be a part of that mission is what we'll also see in chapter 4. These themes continue in chapter 4. And even here's, here's, here's the grace of God, that even in our continual rebellion, God extends mercy. He extends grace to us. Let's walk through the text and I'll show you what I mean there. Look at verse 1. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And you just kind of pump the brakes there and say, Wait a second, it, it displeased Jonah? What displeased Jonah? The fact that these folks relented and, 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 and returned toward God, that, that they repented of their sins, and God relented of his wrath that he was going to pour out on them? Yes, that's exactly what displeased Jonah. He was, he was the preacher. He was the one that went and proclaimed the word of God to them, and the people repented. And you would expect rejoicing, right? That's exactly what you pray for and hope for. But instead, the preacher was angry. Now, I've read some commentaries. I've heard sermons and heard teaching through this chapter. And the thrust of the, the, the sermon or the, the lesson, if, if you will, is that there's a difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And this is what unrighteous anger can cause you to do. And so the, so the sermon then is an observation of the, the foolishness of Jonah in light of the fact that verse 1, he was angry. 
I think there's something deeper going on here. I don't think that's supposed to be the takeaway. You see, I don't think the problem for Jonah was that he was angry. I think the anger was a symptom of a much deeper problem. And anger was just the way that that problem showed up in Jonah's behavior. Let's keep going and I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 2. It says, And he, that's Jonah, prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee Tarshish. Jonah's basically admitting here, I didn't want to do what you said, God. I didn't want to do what you said, but I knew I had no power to stand against you, and so I, I did what you said. Basically, Jonah is saying here, I conformed my behavior to what you wanted me to do because I knew I could never win an arm wrestling match with you. You would, you would finally win, and so I just I did what you wanted me to do. But I was never captivated by you. My heart was never won by you. I just simply, it was just sort of forced obedience. Verse 2, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. How dare you, God? How dare you be merciful and gracious to those Ninevites? You're only supposed to be gracious and merciful to me and your people Israel. And I knew that you would do that. And I'd experienced your mercy. I had experienced your grace. And so that's why I ran the other way. Because I knew of your goodness. And I didn't want them to experience it. I think you're beginning to see a little bit more of this deeper heart issue in Jonah. Verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. So Jonah just very candidly says, kill me, Lord. It'd be better for me to be dead than for me to live and see you bless those Ninevites. Those evil, wicked people. I'd rather be dead than to experience them getting to experience your blessing. Verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In other words, God is is looking at Jonah here in the face and saying, really, Jonah? Really? You would rather die than see me bless those folks? And then again, you have that word. Even the Lord, from the Lord's mouth, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, God is saying basically to Jonah, do you have a right, this anger that you're expressing right now, do you have a right to be angry? So surely this passage is about anger, right? Righteous versus unrighteous anger. Again, I don't think so. Sure, the text has made it clear that Jonah is furious. It's an unholy anger. The text so far through these five verses, four verses, has made that clear to us. But again, that's just on the exterior. I want to dive deeper and see what's going on and attempt to see the source of that anger. And I think what we'll learn if we do is that Jonah ultimately had a heart condition. Even though he belongs to the Lord, even though he's a prophet that's been used of the Lord to to bring the word of God, he's still a sinful man. And I think he has two basic issues going on in his heart. And here's the thing. I think if we lean in here and we we ask the Lord, if if we're honest before the Lord this morning and say, Holy Spirit, would you demonstrate to me this morning through your word, are there any ways in which I'm like Jonah in this matter? I think the Lord would teach us that that we're there too. We're often tempted to be in the exact same place. Here's the two issues going on in Jonah's heart. First, Jonah's affections, his loves are misdirected. Jonah's affections, his loves are misdirected. Second, Jonah's spiritual eyes, his spiritual discernment is not seeing clearly, not remembering rightly. 
So Jonah's affections are misdirected, and second, Jonah's spiritual eyes are not seen clearly. Let's walk through the text, and I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse, uh, this, this first idea of Jonah's affections being misdirected. Well, in other words, what I'm saying there, when our affections are misdirected, when our loves are disoriented, we become idolaters, and that's Jonah. If you think back, even in our study here, through the book of Jonah, if you remember all the way back to chapter 2, that was our first week studying through Jonah, Jonah's in the belly of the fish, and he prays there. And if you remember that prayer, chapter 2, verse 8, these are the words of Jonah. (laughs) These are the words of Jonah. This is what he says in the belly of the fish. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What a profound statement. And it's really a central statement for our study through Jonah. Because if you think about it, Jonah, the prophet of the Lord here, he says that. I believe he believes that. And so how can he be an idolater if he's the one saying something like that? Well, Jonah's not bowing down to, to figurines. He's not worshiping these little statues. So is he really an idolater? I think this morning what we need a reminder of is, is what is idolatry? Because I think if, if asking that question before the Holy Spirit this morning, coming before him, laying our hearts bare, we'll learn that, that, that there's some similarities in our lives. We're tempted to this as well. There's two things I think we can identify as being uh, idolatry. I'll give those to you because I think this is one of the, the, the hard issues going on in Jonah and likely us as well. First, idolatry is when you build your identity on anything other than God. When you build your identity on anything other than God, I told you Jonah had a heart problem. That is, his affections, his loves were misdirected. Jonah's idol was that he loved his racial identity. You think about this. Think back to what we know of Jonah. He loves his status as a leader in a prosperous nation. The Ninevites threatened that. Remember, they were enemies. They were cruel enemies of Israel, and they threatened that, and so he hates them. Why does he hate them? Because they threatened to take away from him that which he loved most. They threatened to take his identity because it was built on something that it should have never been built on. And we all have this temptation. We all have this, 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 this temptation in our flesh to do this, to build our identity on anything other than God. And it's an internal thing. It's something that happens in our hearts and we're not even aware of it till it's already taken place. And we probably would never say it out loud, but it sort of goes like this. I have worth because... And fill in the blank behind that. All right? And so I have worth because I'm good at sports. Right? Maybe for some of, some of our teenagers that would be going through that season of life. I have worth because I'm a good mom. I have worth because I have a successful career. I have worth because I'm a good person. Right? We would never say those things out loud, but somehow those things creep into our heart and lodge themselves into our, our identity. Listen, when you build your identity on anything other than how God feels about you in Christ... You're an idolater. Your identity is what uh, your identity is the, the the thing that the most important person in your life thinks about you, right? Your identity is what the most important person in your life thinks about you. And so, when that identity is built on anything other than God's love, then you'll become fearful or hateful when it's threatened. That's the problem for Jonah. We see it in Jonah's life in a temptation for us, but there could be other symptoms, right? For Jonah, it was anger, right? The Ninevites threatened to take that status from him as a prophet in a prosperous Israel, so he hated them. But for us, it may be different symptoms. For you, it may be unforgiveness toward people that have hurt you or threatened you. That I'll harbor this in my heart and I'll never forgive them for that thing that they've done. Maybe you're, uh, you're full of self-pity, because, they don't, because the people in your life don't recognize the thing that, that has become your sinful identity. I'll give you an example. My, 
uh, kids, my wife, my, my husband, don't appreciate all the ways that I sacrifice for them. They don't even recognize the ways that I give and give and give. Do you hear where that's coming from? You've, been an, you've built an identity as a, as a, as a caretaker, as a, as a spouse or as a parent, and a good one. And so when they don't recognize that thing in you, you're full of self-pity. that They're not recognizing all that you've done for them. Your identity is somewhere it shouldn't be. So idolatry is when you build your identity on something besides God himself and his love for you in Christ. There's a second way to identify idolatry, though. Idolatry is when you desire something more than God. Right? When you desire something more than God. When you find more happiness in being successful in your job than in knowing God. When you find more delight in being financially secure and taken care of than in knowing God. More pleasure in recreation or hobbies than in Christ. More joy and contentment in your spouse or in your marriage than in walking faithfully with the Lord. Jonah found more delight in the prosperity of Israel and the destruction of her enemies than in knowing and delighting in God. And so let me ask you a few questions this morning, just as we think through this practically for us and, and create some space here for the Holy Spirit to convict us. Let me ask you a few questions and see if the Holy Spirit would help to identify this sort of idolatry that could be lingering in our hearts this morning. What are you most terrified of losing? Think about that this morning. Not, not, not just churchy talk, but like think about your, what are you most terrified of losing in this life? Strikes fear into your heart to think that you could lose it. What do you obsess most about obtaining? Like when you lay your head on your pillow at night or if you wake up early in the morning, you're just kind of laying in bed before you start your day. What are you most thinking about obtaining in life? What drives you? What's the one thing that you could not imagine being happy without? Like, if this thing were removed, I don't know how I would find happiness. I don't know that life would be worth living, right? This is where Jonah's at. What's the one thing that without that thing, life is just not worth living anymore? The symptoms of this heart condition are clear to us in Jonah. It's easy to read Jonah and see this heart condition in him, right? There's worry, there's anger, there's jealousy, there's hate, there's unforgiveness. Even when these folks repent, there's unforgiveness. And those things lead him to a place where he says, I'd rather die than live without this idolatry, this idol of, of, of prosperity as Israel, status as a nation and as a leader of that nation. I would rather die than to give that up. So that's part one of Jonah's problem. I told you Jonah's problem is twofold. Part one is that his affections were misdirected. His loves were misguided. He, he was an idolater. Second is this. Jonah's spiritual eyes are not seeing clearly. Jonah's discernment, spiritual discernment and wisdom is, 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 is clearly off the mark here. And here's what I mean. Look back at verse 2. It says, For I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So Jonah says that, all true things of God, he is merciful, he is slow to anger, he's steadfast in love, and he's certainly been that way toward Israel. We've, we've studied through the Old Testament, we've seen their failures, and they are many. So Jonah knows from experience and from the, the history and his heritage, how he's grown up in Israel, he knows those things to be true. But here's the thing, he's saying them resentful. He's full of resent as he says those true things about God. Now, why would that be the case? Why would he be resentful of God's mercy? Why would he be resentful of the grace of God? After all, what character in this story, in this text, has received great grace? Jonah. 
time and time again, even in our, our, our very short study through Jonah, he's been the recipient of grace and mercy. But Jonah's resentful because he doesn't see himself in the category of those who need great grace. He doesn't see himself as the person who's been a recipient of great grace. See, here's the thing. If you see yourself as basically a good person, then God owes you things. And there's no room in your heart for generosity towards others. You tend to be resentful when God blesses someone that you feel like doesn't deserve it. By your standard, they don't deserve it. And so you're resentful when God shows them mercy, shows them grace, blesses them, and maybe in ways that he's not blessed you. On the other hand, when you see yourself as a recipient of great grace, you see yourself as God sees you as a sinner that he's lavished grace upon, then you can be compassionate towards others. And his compassion is the most precious attribute of God to you, that he is a God full of mercy and full of grace. And as a result, you can become compassionate to others. Even if they're an enemy, even if they have someone that wronged you, you can love it when God blesses them or, or gives mercy to them. So when our spiritual eyes see how sinful we are, then God's mercy is something that we'll never be resentful about. Let me ask you again some questions as we think through this and ask the Holy Spirit to help us, help us identify if this could be going on in our lives. Let me ask you some questions and let the Lord give the Lord some room to work here in your heart. When God blesses someone that you see as unworthy, how do you react to that? Maybe in our community, maybe in the world, maybe in our, 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 our country, you see God blessing a group of people that are evil, that have turned their backs on God, He's shown them mercy in some way. How do you react to that? Do you find it easy to show compassion to others? Is that something that overflows from your heart? Because you remember, daily remember the compassion that God has had toward you in Christ. And so for you to demonstrate compassion to others is just a natural thing to you as the Spirit leads in your life. How generous are you with your money? Our pocketbooks say a whole lot about our hearts. Open-handed people tend to have a better understanding of the fact that none of it would be theirs but for God's grace. Stingy people tend to have a perspective that this is my money. I've earned it, so I'll spend it how I please, right? It's a reflection of what God's done in our hearts. How forgiving are you toward your spouse? I think we could all wrestle with this one for a while. Are you the one that is always quick to apologize and ask for forgiveness, or do you wait for them to do it? Do you sit back and wait for them to come and say, I'm sorry? Do we see ourselves first as a sinner against God and second as a sinner against our spouse? And when we do see ourselves in that light, first a sinner against God, second a sinner against our spouse, we'll become much more forgiving people. It'll be easier for us to show mercy when we've been sinned against, even by our own spouse, the person closest to us in our lives. Jonah's spiritual eyes here were not seeing clearly because he didn't see his own sin clearly. He didn't see his own need of grace and mercy clearly. Honestly, Jonah, if you were to ask him at this time, he probably didn't even see his sin and Nineveh's sin even in the same categories, right? He probably would have separated them and said, hey, the Ninevites are adulterers. They're idol worshipers. They're murderers. They're cruel people. Remember week one, the background I gave you? They actually skinned people alive and used flesh of human beings as their wall decor. These people are evil. They steal they go and destroy other people. I haven't done any of that. All right? And so these separate categories, do you hear it? Do you hear the sense of superiority? They're in need of, 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 of wrath. I, 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 though, have been shown God's mercy because I'm not as bad as they are. But what had Jonah done? Think back. Let's jog our memories. What had Jonah done? He looked into the face of God and said, no. 
God commands him to do something. He clearly hears the Lord and says, no. Is there any sin greater than that? Right? I mean, think about what we, what we learn even in the scriptures. Uh, original sin. The sin in the garden. The one that damned all of the human race. What was it? It was the exact same thing. It was looking at God and saying no. <laughs> Eating of the tree it was not the issue. The issue was not the tree itself. It was saying no to God. Hearing the command of God and saying no. Direct rebellion, direct sin against God. And so the, the sin that led to all of the pain and suffering and corruption that we see in the world today, the sin that condemned the entire human race to hell, was saying no to God. And that's exactly what Jonah had, had done in, the, in our text. And that's the exact same that we do, right? We're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of hearing the word of God and, and saying no to him. You may not be a murderer. You may not be an adulterer or a drug addict or a pedophile, but in some ways our sin is worse because in, in, in many of those categories, you know, the, the murderer or the pedophile, they don't even know there is a God. But for us, raised to hear and know the word of God, raised around the gospel, raised with exposure to knowing who Jesus is and what he's commanded of us, to hear him and say, no, is direct rebellion against the holy God. I said this in week one, I'll say it again. You're never farther from God than when you're close to him and you say no. You're never farther from God than when you're close to him and you look at him and say, mm -mm, not going to do it, God. Jonah's sin was blasphemy of the highest degree, but Jonah doesn't see that. And so he doesn't see grace rightly. He doesn't see his need of a savior. And so he doesn't have compassion for others because he's not seeing the compassion that God's had for him. So that's Jonah's problem. His affections, his loves are misdirected. His spiritual eyes are not seeing clearly. And here's the thing. Here's the thing, church family. The, the crazy part of all this is that all of this, chapter 4, comes after he's consented to doing God's will, right? By this point in the text, Jonah's no longer running from God, physically running from God. He's, he's said yes to God, and he's done what God asked him to do. All of this is a hard issue on the back end. All of this is coming after he's been obedient he's a religious man that has gone through the right actions we do well to hold on for a second and think through that thought is it possible that, that could be the case for some of us here this morning we've gone through the right actions but our heart is far from him that 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 we've that we've we've heard the gospel we've heard the the uh, the consequences of not responding to christ and maybe you say well, hey i don't go to, i don't want to go to hell i don't want to be in the belly of the fish so I won't defy God, right? That still doesn't mean that you've come to the place where you delight in him. That, that still doesn't mean that you've come to this new sort of obedience where you're being led by the Spirit to lay down your life to God because he's the most precious thing in the world to you, precious person ever that, you, that, that you've... Listen, delight in God can be only produced, not, not by fear of the belly of the fish, right? Delighting, that, that, that got Jonah to the place where he went and did sort of forced obedience, went and did what God wanted him to do. But, but, but the belly of the fish or threat of death or hell can't produce delight. That can only be produced by grace. And so seeing that Jesus went into the belly of the fish for you, seeing that Jesus paid the penalty, he paid every bit of the penalty that you should have been paying, that's grace. In your place, he traded places with you and he took the death you deserved. That sort of understanding of grace is the only way that we're, we're brought to the place where we delight in God and, and in the gospel and in, in the word of God coming to us. Let's continue though. Look at verse 5. 
says Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. You read verse 5 and you think, man, Jonah's really in a bad place, right? Like, think, think, picture this, right? He's out there outside the city. And he's hoping that, 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 that their repentance is just some shape, uh, fake, shallow thing, that it's fake repentance, and then when it wears off, it'll prove to be ingenuine, that it was not real repentance, and that as a result, God will send a lightning bolt out of the sky and destroy them. Maybe some fire and brimstone to destroy them, and the whole city will burn alive. That's the only reason he's still there. I mean, think about it. He's sitting outside of the city because he doesn't want to miss it when God finally judges them. So not only does he want them to die, the wickedness and the idolatry going on in his heart. He wants them to die, and he wants to be able to watch it happen. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Note this, when the passage speaks of the Lord appointing a vine and then a worm and then a scorching wind, it's referring to the providence of God. Again, that we serve a sovereign God who has control and power over all of these things. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, God's works are completely holy and wise and powerful and preserving and governing every creature and every action. Right? And so you think back what we've learned in the book of Jonah. Just as the Lord appointed a fish in chapter 1, because he absolutely controls winds and waves and all sea creatures, now he decrees that a plant will grow up. And not just that a plant will grow up, right? Think about the supernatural thing that's going on here. This plant grows up tall enough to be shade for Jonah in one short day. Why? Because God is sovereign in his providence. He provides this plant. And Jonah rejoices. I love my little shade tree. That's the same Lord, that's the same God that by his providence brought shade in one day. The next day, by his providence, he brings a very hungry caterpillar. Again, think through the supernatural thing that's going on here. He brings a caterpillar, a worm, to consume the plant that Jonah had delighted in because of its shade to eat this plant so that Jonah no more has shade. And then follows that by another act of his divine sovereignty. He, he brings a scorching wind that, that, that makes Jonah such that he's about to have a heat stroke, right? And so all of this is showing us the providence of God, that he's in control of these things. And it's so bad from Jonah's perspective that he starts up with this, I wish I were dead thing again, right? It'd be better that I'd be dead. My tree's gone. My shade's gone. My head's hot. Just kill me now. And Jonah likes God's mercy, when it brings him the thing that he thinks he needs, which is shade, the shade tree. He doesn't like God's mercy when it brings what is really needed, which is forgiveness for the Ninevites and a scorching heat stroke uh, for a wayward prophet. Oh, I don't want the, the providence of God now. Look at verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And it's sort of here, like God is in the counselor's seat here, right? God has Jonah's attention, and he asks Jonah again, the second time in the passage, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah, responding to that question, Jonah's angry over this plant. God says, do you have the right 
to be angry over this plant? Jonah responds, yes, this time, yes, I have the right to be angry, angry enough, in fact, that I just want to die. Now, I'll be honest with you, if I'm in the counselor's seat there, right, it's going to be very hard for me to bite my tongue and not laugh at Jonah at this point. He's just said, you killed my plant, go ahead and kill me too, right? And, and I realize I often lack sensitivity, so that's why I would probably want to laugh. But this is no laughing matter for Jonah. It, it sounds like this plant was really important to him. The shade that it provided was a blessing to him, and now he's, he's really upset. So verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God takes Jonah to task here and he says, you're worried about a plant. You're worried about a plant, but Jonah, Nineveh is filled with people. People created in my image, living human beings just like you. It's an interesting note here. Most scholars would say that that 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left hand, the fact that, that the, the writer intentionally says their right hand from their left hand is giving us a clue that it's actually a reference to the children in the city, right? Which makes sense if you think about it. As a father of a four-year-old, I can't tell you how many times in a week I get asked, Dad, is this my right foot? <laughs> Do I have my shoes on the right feet? He doesn't know his right from his left. And that, that's probably what's going on here. So, in other words, God's saying, Jonah, could you look at a city with such massive destruction of life Of sinful people, yes, but of people just like you and even children who are as precious to their parents as your children are to you. How can you look at that and not care, Jonah? And then it looks like God throws in the last line there for a little bit of comic relief. And also the cattle. The cows, Jonah. The cows are going to die. Couldn't you at least care for the cows, right? The Lord's not a... Doing that to be comical, though, I think it's there for a reason. It's the second time, by the way, that cows have come up in the text of Jonah. If you remember back to uh, our, our, uh, our last week's sermon, you remember that the king, once they, once they hear the word of God and, and the king desires that the whole city put on sackcloth and, 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 and mourn over their sins, this, this, this image of repentance, remember he, he wanted the, the livestock to fast as well. Because it, it added to this overall sense of mourning. Just hearing the cows hungry, mooing all the time, added to the sense of, of groaning, right? I think here the mention of cattle again is reminding us that all of creation awaits salvation. All of this earth and everything in it is groaning for, Romans chapter 8, groaning for the final redemption of the earth that comes when Christ returns. Well, let's wrap up. Let's wrap up and see how the book of Jonah ends. If you look at your Bible, what does the last verse say? Some of you didn't look down because you didn't fall for it. (laughs) That was a trick question. That was it. That was the last verse. And so if you look down looking to see how it ended, that's it. It ends with a question. And I think the book ends with a question because in many ways the book is a question for you and for me. And the question is this, do you care? Do you care? Do you care more for perishing people than you do for your stuff? Stuff is temporary. The plant that Jonah was grieved over, that that thing was temporary. It was not going to live forever anyways. The souls of people are not temporary. Do you care, Jonah? Do you care, Poplar Spring Baptist Church? And so it's a question for us. What do we care about? What thoughts get prioritized in our hearts? Do we ever shed tears over the lost? 
The last thing that we cried for, what was it? What was the last thing that broke our hearts? What was the last thing that we were grieved over? Is it, is it the fact that there are people perishing every day without hearing the name of Christ? How much, does the grief, how much grief does the fate of the lost bring us? For Jonah, for Jonah, these Ninevites were not people. They were a concept. They were an enemy that needed to be destroyed, not faces with souls that needed to be saved. And that's the problem. And I think that's the question that it leaves us with. That's why God pointed out that there are 120,000 children. He's emphasizing that these are individuals created in his image. Jonah, don't you care, right? That's the way it ends. So let me borrow, a, let me borrow from God's playbook here. Did you know that there are 2.2 billion individuals in our world that have never been warned of the danger of saying no to Christ? 2.2 billion people. 2.2 billion that have never heard the wonderful news of Jesus. Individuals just like you who love their children just like you love your children. 2.2 billion people who are going to hell because they've never heard the saving grace of Jesus. And we, we, we will end with the question that Jonah ends with. Do we care? Do we care? Does that bother us? Does that move us to action? And you say, Matt, this kind of, this kind of feels, I'm just being honest with you, this sort of feels like a guilt trip. So is that, is that what you're doing this morning? Are you, are you, are you sort of giving us the, the old guilt trip? Here's the thing. If I knew that would work, sure. I'm not, as a, as a pastor, I'm not a, above guilt tripping you into the Great Commission if that would work. But here's the thing. It won't work. <laughs> a guilt trip may fire you up for a second, but it'll fade when the ringing's not still in your ear. The guilt trip will fade whenever that, that, that noise goes away and you begin to think about something else. Instead, the only thing that will cause us to leverage our lives for the spread of Jesus' fame is the Holy Spirit inside of you creating a supernatural concern and care for the lost. I have no power to do that. But here's what I've been praying for you and me is that by the power of, of, of the Spirit of God and the Word of God coming together in our hearts this morning, that he'll do that for each and every one of us, that he'll stir us so that we won't rest we won't be okay. We won't just be complacent or apathetic about this, that there are people around us dying, going to hell. That he would stir in us a desire to do something about it. Adonai Judson said this, But surely if any sin will lie with crushing weight on the trembling, shaking soul when gr a grim death draws near, it's the sin of turning a deaf, e deaf ear to the cry of tens of millions of immortal beings who day and night cry out, Come and save us, for we are sinking into hell. That was 1831. And those tens of millions have 200 years later turned into 2 billion. 2 billion people that, as Adoniram Judson said, are crying out night and day, come and save us for we are sinking into hell. How could we not care? How can we not be about doing something about this? This is the, the thrust of the message of Jonah, especially in the closing of the book. How can we have so much passion for things that are eternally speaking, they don't matter at all, i.e. the plant, and have so little passion for things that do matter, eternally speaking. There's another note here that, that we should recognize, and it really sweeps throughout the entire book of Jonah. I told you, uh, if you remember back to week one, I told you in Jonah there are some really neat literary devices that take place in the book. As, as literature, there's some very intentional things that are going on. I told you uh, week one, if you, if you look at chapter one, Chapter 1, verse 5, the, the word down is used. That Jonah went down into the inner part of the ship. That he'd laid down and was fast asleep. Chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us that Jonah went down into Joppa. He paid the fare and went down into the boat. 
And this use of the word down four times in two verses, it's meant to give us a picture. It's an important play on words here that the writer's doing to give us a picture of the the downward spiral of sin, of disobedience toward God, and the way that Jonah's life was spiraling downward. There's another literary feature here in the book that now that we're through chapter 4 and through the end of the book, you can really see, you can really take note of. Uh, So if you go back and trace the word great, right? It's intentional throughout the book. Chapter 1, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Verse 4 of chapter 1, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Chapter 1, verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid. Chapter 16, the men feared the Lord greatly. 17, the Lord appointed a great fish. Chapter 3, verse 2, go to Nineveh, that great city. Chapter 3, verse 3, and Nineveh was exceedingly great city. Chapter 3, verse 5, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Chapter 4, verse 6, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Chapter 4, verse 11, I should, not, should I not pity, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Why would I point that out to us? Because I think it's an intentional feature here by the writer. The writer of Jonah is, is, is desiring that we feel the greatness of God's mission, a weightiness to this mission, that it's no small task then for Jonah, and it's no small task for us today. Nineveh's wickedness was great. God's grace is greater. Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites was great, but God's compassion toward the Ninevites was greater. So the question for us as we, as we leave this book and as we go about our week this week, do we feel the, the weight? Do we feel the greatness of this mission? Because it's not changed. Our world is, is just as evil, but God is greater. Our world is, 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 is a sinful world, but God's mercy and compassion for the folks in this world is greater still. C.T. Studd, one of my favorite missionary heroes, he said this, and this, this quote rings in my heart all the time. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And what a thought. That that would captivate our hearts. That Christ be God and died for me. So no matter what tomorrow brings and what I'm, I'm, I'm asked to give up on, on behalf of him, it's not too great for me to make. So that's the question that Jonah ends with. Does Jonah get it? Well, I think he does. And most scholars believe that Jonah himself wrote this book. And so that means if Jonah's writing this book and he's ending it in this way with this question, intentionally posing this question for his readers, I think he probably got it. At this time, when God says this, or at some time later in his life, he gets it. And so the question is not whether Jonah got it. The question is whether you and I get it. Are we engaged in the mission of God? There's really no middle ground here. There's no middle ground either. Either you're a part of this self-sacrificing, radical mission of God, or you're disobedient. Jesus commanded us, take up the cross and follow him, which means we die to ourselves, we die to our own desires, we die for, to our plans for us, and we say, Jesus, what you want. That's what it, that's, and here's the thing, I think often we think that's what it means for the few, the proud, the elite, right, followers of Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not like a, like a, a, a special class or an MVP club that yield their lives to Jesus and will do radical things for Jesus. No, that that is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the question is whether we'll be obedient. And so let's pray and ask for the Lord to give us his great grace to follow him. If you're here, as we respond, I'm going to get Michael to come up, and we're going to sing, and we're going to ask the Lord to to help us be obedient in this, by his spirit, to lead us to radical obedience. But here's the thing. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, 
You've never given your life to Christ. If you could look back to your life, there's never been a moment where I've, I've said, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need your grace. And I trust that you died for me. If you've never become a follower of Christ, call on him today. Call on him today. If he's calling you and you know in his heart that he's died on the cross for you, go to him today. And here's how you do that. I want to I I give you some instructions on this. If you've never given your life to Christ, pray to him. When we're responding in a moment, singing and praying as believers, as followers of Christ, you pray to him. And there's no magical formula here. There's no incantation that you have to get perfect. Here's what you do, though. You tell the Lord that you know you're a sinner and you're in need of his grace. Tell him you know you're a sinner and, you need, and tell him that you know that, that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection is the only way that you can have forgiveness. That you know and trust that Jesus died in your place, took your sin and penalty. And the Bible promises if you would do that, if you'll turn to him and trust him and repent of your sins, that he'll be faithful to forgive you. Would you do that today? Because here's the thing. You're not promised tomorrow. And here's the, here's the other thing. Even if you wake up tomorrow, you're not promised that the Holy Spirit will draw you to himself like he may be doing in this moment. So today, would you yield to Christ? Ask him to forgive you of your sins? Will you do like the Ninevites and repent? Turn from your wicked ways and trust his death on the cross in your place. Church family, let's stand and and respond to the text today. Ask the Lord to point out any idols that may be lingering in our hearts. Let's create some space for the Holy Spirit to do that. And if he convicts you, give it to him today. Let's respond.